2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. I think we can all agree the current political moment is fraught. But how does it compare to the other fraught political moments in history? It felt for a time in part of that decade like everything was falling apart. Young people against old people, anti-war violence, peace movement. I'm former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara, and this week, presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin joins me on my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet. We talk about difficult times in America's history and how its people overcame them. The episode is out now. Search and follow Stay Tuned with Preet wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, I got two things I want to tell you about. The first is uh, Evan, Evan Ratliff, my co-host. His book, The Mastermind, is out in paperback. I'm sure if you listen to the show, you have read The Mastermind. But if you have not, now is the time to pick up a copy. Go get the paperback edition. Here are some things that people said about the mastermind. It's a toward force of shoe leather reporting. That was in the Los Angeles Times. The Daily Mail called it a masterwork of investigative journalism. And Publishers Weekly said it was a true crime classic. We have talked about the mastermind on this show a fair amount. I interviewed Evan about it. Uh, But if you have not read the book, now's the time. Go get it. Paperback version of the mastermind out now. Also... I want to tell you about another podcast I think you'll like. It's called The Chronicles of Now, and it's a pretty uh, it's a pretty interesting idea. So here's what it is. The Chronicles of Now commissions amazing authors to write short fiction inspired by real news events, by the headlines. So each episode features a new work of fiction inspired by the biggest stories and really like the biggest questions of our time. What is COVID going to do to our relationships and our lives and, and work? How do we make sense of climate change and... Um, extinction the big questions because these are uncertain times and uh fiction is a way to make sense of it all if you're a fan of short fiction of speculative fiction historical novels podcasts that go behind the news this show is something you want to check out it's called the chronicles of now and it's available wherever you are listening to this show it's on apple podcasts and it's brought to you by pushkin industries and now uh it's time those are the two things here's long form Hello, and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I am Evan Ratliff, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Hey. Hey, you guys. Uh, Evan, who is on the program? This week on the program, Sayward Darby. She is a friend of mine. She and I have worked together at a magazine, and we talked a little bit about that. We worked together at the Atavis Magazine back when I was the editor-in-chief, and then she took over the magazine uh, when I left. And I kind of thought we were going to talk mostly about that. Uh, But in fact, she's written this book called Sisters in Hate that is about her reporting on the women of the white nationalist movement, uh, three different women who kind of like enter the white nationalist movement in different ways. It's an insane book. Um, 
and it's insane reporting and research. And we ended up talking almost entirely about that. Uh, it's based out of a Harper story that she wrote some years ago. And uh, sort of ever since I've known her, she's been digging into this aspect of the white nationalist movement, which is not fun to report on, but uh, she, the book makes a very good case for why it's important to understand. And if it sounds familiar, it was also the like uh, lead story in the Sunday Review, I think, last week or two weeks ago, uh, and was like one of the most popular articles in the Times for a long time. So uh, it's getting a lot of attention. Can I say something unrelated? Of course. I'd like to thank all of the well wishes I have received from people who listen to this show about the finding of my cat, Whistle. I didn't know so many of you cared. It's uh, very touching to know that people listen to this show over time and uh, care about the events of our lives like a missing cat. So thanks to everyone. If I had a newsletter, I'd send it out uh, about the finding of that cat. And I would do it with MailChimp because they support the show and have for many years, hundreds of episodes in the archive. Thank you to them. Now here's Evan with Sayward Darby. Sayward, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Evan. It's so nice to be here. We should stipulate here at the beginning. I've, I'm always having these stipulations because I don't know. I guess I'm old and I've been around a long time. <laughs> but um, we should stipulate that we have worked together. We have edited a magazine together. And uh, maybe remarkably, at the end of that, we remain friends. And so I do want to talk about that editing, actually. But I want to talk about that later, because first I want to talk about writing. Um, and I think the the pairing of the two and how you approach the two is, is an interesting thing to explore. But first, ever since I have known you, which is like four to five years, roughly. Something like that, yeah. You have immersed yourself in the world of white nationalism. And True. I've always been uh, both in admiration that you've been able to do that and not become an insane person, just like not totally lose your mind in the darkness, but also like genuinely curious. I mean, I sort of know what led to the first story, but like from whence does your interest come in this <laughs> topic? I mean, of the book, like the general topic. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it probably comes from a couple of different places and the most immediate one was just the election in 2016 and feeling as I think a lot of people did very sad and angry and confused and wanting to really understand how we got to where we were. And in that moment, the alt-right, such as it was at the time, you know, was in the news. And Richard Spencer, who was the head of the National Policy Institute, which is a fancy sounding think tanky name, but he's just a white nationalist, um, hosted an event in Washington, D.C., where he famously instigated a Nazi salute by saying, hail Trump or something like that. Um, hail victory, hail Trump. And in the news coverage of that, people kept describing the alt-right as a lot of angry white men and white nationalism as a lot of angry white men. And my question was just, where are the women? Because it seemed unlikely that they were not there. And it didn't take very long to 
find that in fact they were there <laughs> um, simply by searching for them online. They're, um, they're in the movement, you mean, not literally at that event? Yeah, I mean, there, there were some at that event, certainly. But yes, exactly. Like in the movement, this idea that it was all about toxic masculinity and toxic white masculinity, that just seemed off to me. Uh, and so that very simple question of where are the women, why is nobody talking about the women, was a seed of interest. But then I also think, you know, more deeply, like I grew up in the South, as did you. Um, Indeed. And I grew up in a liberal household. My parents are really liberal, but I grew up in a pretty conservative place. Um, certainly had very conservative family members, family who owned slaves back in the day and fought for the Confederacy. And so I think there was no small part of my interest that also came from a place of wanting to understand where I came from. And I had never really dug into that personally. And I think that my interest in wanting to understand what motivates white supremacy certainly drew from a well of like personal experience and, and family experience. But then when you start to treat it as a reporting project, mm -hmm. I feel like this other question comes up, which is, you know, I mean, the most obvious example to point to is sort of like the New York Times story about Nazis that were sort of like Nazis live right next door. And it was extremely controversial because there is this very difficult line between saying we're going to try to understand something and show that it's there and show that it's every day and kind of giving it an unnecessary spotlight and even legitimacy by by covering it. And so going into reporting on it, did you already have in your mind your sort of like framing of that question? Like why it was worth writing about these type of people? Yeah, yeah, no. And that's a question, you know, I wrestled with initially with the article that I wrote for Harper's in 2017. And then I've, you know, continued to wrestle with to this day is, you know, how to talk about these people and how to talk about what they believe without making it seem like I'm suggesting that it's I mean, legitimate's an interesting word, right? Because like, I do not think it is a an ethical worldview. I do not think that it is a worldview that anyone should tolerate. But it's legitimate insofar as, you know, it draws from white supremacy in a much more systemic way. So like, you know, when you when you hear white supremacists talk, when you when you hear the language that they use, it's really shocking, right? If they use a slur or if they use something that is just outright heinous. But if you really think about it, a lot of what they're saying is just amplified or hyperbolized versions of what is accepted racism. Mm -hmm. um, and so one of the things that made me very interested in this topic was that I, I wanted to think about how they were not just an other because I think there's a tendency to to other them and to think, well, that's just abominable. That's I can't imagine. You know, I would never. But, you know, it's all drawing from the same roots. And so but to get back to your question about coverage and like how to cover them. And um, I had a great editor at Harper's who was another friend, Katya Bachko. Mm -hmm. And she and I talked a good bit before I really dove into the project in early 2017 about how I wanted what, what was the best way to approach this? Um, and we ultimately decided that the most ethical way to approach it was to be very forthright about who I was and also that I disagreed with them. 
and to come from a place almost anthropologically of saying, I want to understand this. I wasn't interested in arguing with them. I could bring my argument to the page. So I wasn't interested in getting into fights. I was interested in understanding what they believed, where they came from, who they were as people, how they, you know, fit into the broader tapestry of white supremacy in America. And then in writing about them, making sure that, you know, you can't, with these types of people, you can't, every time they say something that's a lie, correct it in the text, because that would mean that everything was twice as long as it needs to be. But there was a way of writing it, I think, that, I mean, certainly there were things that they said that were just so patently false that there was really no correction needed, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But then also sort of using my voice to create pushback in the text, not being overtly judgmental, but being clear in my opposition to what they believe. And I think that that's a big, when you talked about the New York Times piece, what was problematic about that piece and what was problematic about a lot of pieces that came out around that time talking about these people is there was a presentation of this is who they are. They look just like us. They shop at the same stores that we do. Isn't that crazy? But then there wasn't a lot of thoughtful analysis of what does that tell us about the communities in which they live and are able to live comfortably. And there was not a lot of thinking about just like the wider landscape in which they exist. And so it's definitely, it's hard. And I think that there have been a lot of really good reporters covering this topic. And the best among them are people who have been more interested in taking a very thoughtful, slow approach, honestly, as opposed to, you know, let me shine a light on this. Isn't this crazy? So Lynn, let's talk about how you initiate contact. So, mm-hmm. so you say, okay, I've found this, this area of this sort of hate movement that I want to focus on, which is the women in it. And then what, what, what is your, <laughs> like, what's your kind of like form email look like, you know, or what, however you approach people? Yeah. So my form email was basically that, you know, this is who I am. I shared who I was working for at that point, Harper's. And I also said a little bit about myself and I explained, you know, I'm a liberal. I consider myself a feminist. I am also from the South and there are people in my past who very much would have agreed with your worldview. And clearly there are other people who believe what you believe. And, you know, I want to understand that. I want to hear what you have to say. I want to understand what brought you to this point and why you think other people should come to this point and to agree with you. And it was a risky approach insofar as I got lots of no's or hell no's Mm -hmm. or wouldn't be caught dead Mm -hmm. talking to the fake news media. But then there were a few who were willing to talk. And I had a um, one source in particular who was both willing to talk, but she was also a little bit of a mentor to some other people in the movement. And she encouraged some other women to talk to me as well. She kind of, and so that was like a huge key in terms of opening up potential sources. And again, this is all, you know, in the Harper's piece as opposed to to the book, which is 
you know, slightly different, but that was a huge help. And I was also always very, like I said, I didn't argue with anybody, which it was hard to be clear (laughs) when people are saying things to you like, I don't know, national socialism gets a bad rap. You know, your first instinct is to argue back with all the reasons that that's wrong. I also didn't want to say, oh, you know, yeah, I didn't want to seem as though I was acknowledging the potential rightness of what they were saying. And so there was just a lot of nodding and saying that's interesting and then trying to move on to the next question or a sub question. Because the thing is, like, they want you to fight with them, I think, because they really thrive in that almost debate club environment of pointing out double standards and false equivalences, you know, using their mustering false equivalences to make their points. Mm -hmm. And so I worked really hard to not go down those rabbit holes. I mean, there were certainly times where I failed at that, but so it was definitely really delicate (laughs) um, is the, maybe the best word to describe it. And did you think I mean, this is always a question, like, there's the question of, like, why any sources talk on certain types of stories. But, I mean, you have, you end up with three women in the book, we should say. Mm-hmm. Karina, Isla is the pronunciation? Ayla. Ayla, okay. And Lana. And so, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know what counts as a spoiler. They're, they're all white nationalists <laughs> in some form or another. But, but one of them has left the movement, and there's some mm-hmm. story about that. And, and two of them are pretty embedded in it. And did you feel like... They were talking to you, believing that they could win you over. In the moment, what did you feel like their motivation was in talking to you? Yeah, no, um, that's a really, really good question. And I'm, you know, I'm not inside their heads. And so I certainly made it clear from go that they were not going to convince me of anything. Um, I think I even said that in my email to them. And they also knew that they were not going to be getting anything out of it. Like um, Lana, for instance, her name's Lana Lochtef, and she and her husband, Henrik Palmgren, run a online alt media company called Red Ice, which is just a platform for white nationalism. And I think she saw it as an opportunity to almost be on equal footing somehow with another media person. So like when I interviewed her in person in Charleston, she showed up at the bar where we met with her husband, like unannounced, which was interesting. Um, And he was very respectful of like our time, but it was, you know, weird to have somebody kind of looming over you the whole time. But also they set up recording equipment, like they were recording me. And on the one hand, that's possibly so that they could use it against me at some point, which was another reason I had to be very delicate and careful in terms of, you know, how I interacted with them and and things that I said and um, how I reacted. But I also think that it was just, you know, they thought maybe they would create content for their content generating platform. And Lana also at one point asked me if I would come on Red Ice and I told her no. But I think that there was maybe some little bit of hope that there would be something to gain from that. But then I also think that there was women are interesting in white nationalism because they're connectors between the hate movement and the mainstream. Mm. They put on a very happy, you know, smiling, like, aren't I nice? You know, I could be your friend. I really am not so different than you. I think they're very good at that in a way that men, which doesn't say that there aren't men who aren't good at that, but that's what they historically have been good at. And so I think there was also, even if they couldn't convince me of anything, I think there was maybe a hope that their message would 
resonate with whoever I was writing for. But then, of course, that didn't work out because, like I said, you know, I I was approaching this from the standpoint of bringing my argument to the page and being able to acknowledge on the page the ways in which what they said and believe I found to be odious. So it's, I guess, worth noting, um, and I say this in the conclusion of the book, that neither Lana nor Ayla will speak to me anymore. And I think that's because they realized, first of all, that there was nothing to gain for them. But also, and I think this is a key thing to think about in any conversation about covering the far right these days, is that they don't really need the mainstream media. They have so many platforms and platforms are constantly being created. I mean, the number of platforms that just emerged over the course of my working on this that I had to create an account to get into (laughs) to be able to see what people were up to, Um, whether you're talking about Gab, which, you know, was a sort of libertarian free speech response to Twitter cracking down to Discord, which was a platform primarily used by gamers. And then, you know, white nationalists started using it to Telegram. And so, On the one hand, I think they did maybe have this little hope at the beginning that, you know, this is a way to get our message out there. But as soon as it was clear that it was not going to be delivered in a way that they found satisfactory, they were like, screw it. We have our own media paradise, basically, on the Internet that we can use. And obviously, Andrew Marantz, who you've had on the podcast and who is friend and family, he writes about this in his book about We misunderstand what it means to have a platform in 2020 sometimes, you know, just because you're not being written about in the Times or the Post or whatever doesn't mean you're not reaching exactly the people that you intend to be reaching. So I think that's a a thing that's missed a lot in conversations about covering this space. It's interesting to me that they believed enough in the sort of power of their message that mm-hmm. they, I mean, they clearly must have known that you were going to frame the story in certain ways. I'm sure they would have said that to themselves and to you, like, oh, you're going to paint us to be this, that, and the other. But that they believe that somehow what would seep through, like, someone would catch hold of it and kind of join the movement or, like, get more interested in what they were doing. Yeah. I mean, well, I think there's an interesting distinction. So much has changed, Evan, (laughs) between 2016 and now. I mean, so much is the same and so much has changed. But, you know, when I was initially interviewing these women, and I should say, you know, I spoke to a variety of people who were in the movement, not just like the women who ultimately turned up in the piece, but they were still riding the high of Trump's election. And I think that that early 2017 pocket of time is unique in modern memory and history. And there was actually a there are not a lot of people who study the far right for their lives. Like it's a very, very small number of academics in sociology, anthropology, a couple history, certainly um, who study this stuff. And I remember talking to one of them early on, who is a preeminent historian and analyst of the hate movement. And she said, nothing is different about what they believe. Now the difference is that they are excited about who's running the government because normally Uh, You know, when we think of the far right, we think of anti-government forces. And so this was almost a like a victory lap moment, right, where their guy (laughs) was in the White House. And then, like, ultimately, I think he proved not to be what they hoped, which is a whole separate discussion (laughs) about how Trump could not be extreme enough for somebody. But anyway, I, I caught them in this moment of believing like they saw this 
possibility of of gaining traction in a mainstream way. And I, you know, I don't I don't know. Like if I had started reporting this two years prior, two years later, would they have had the same reaction to my ask? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Impossible to say. Well, one thing that really struck me about them, just like their entry points into this ideology, and that in some sense it was like in one case, maybe they were already like kind of testing those waters from an earlier time in their lives. But then in the other cases, they were actually like quite liberal thinking people. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested in how you tried to capture that and sort of like what that means to you when you're hearing like how they were attracted to this supremacy ideology. Definitely. I mean, I think the bottom line of how I now think about the the channels of radicalization, the causes of radicalization, I find it more terrifying now than I did before I went into this project. Mm. And I think that this is, you know, a complicated topic, but I think that maybe the most enlightening thing I learned in working on this book ultimately was that when we think of hate, we think of animosity, right? We think hate means I do not like someone or I do not like something. I deplore it. I despise it. And hate as a movement is actually a lot more like any social movement where it's providing something to its supporters, members, acolytes that they were seeking but didn't necessarily know where they were going to find it. So it could be camaraderie, it could be power, it could be purpose. In some cases, it could be money because there's economic opportunity in it. And there's something terrifyingly to me mundane about that, that we live particularly in the present moment (laughs) in a time of great uncertainty where you have a lot of people who are seeking something. I mean, we have, you know, between the economic recession and now what's going on um, with unemployment in the midst of the pandemic, we have a lot of people who are at sea in terms of how they're going to make a living, how they're going to define their days and who they are in the world. And, you know, there's been a decline of faith, um, religious faith over, you know, the last couple of decades. But that doesn't mean that the impulse to believe something in something bigger than yourself doesn't exist. And so people are almost looking for something like religion, even if they're not consciously aware that that's the thing that they're looking for. And so the rhetoric of hate is not immediately, okay, if you're part of this, you have to dislike somebody else. That's not the pitch. That's not the sell, right? The pitch and the sell is that this is going to be a place where you matter, where your voice is heard, where the person that you are, and in this case, you know, a white person, is of incredible value and something to celebrate. And so I'm now constantly on the lookout for, I don't know, people who I'm like, oh, yeah, that person could become a white nationalist, (laughs) just in terms of like people who really seem to be seeking something and seem at sea in the current moment or in or in the current discourse, I should also say, particularly young people. And so, like I said, I find it more terrifying now that I understand, not, not that I went into this project thinking like, if you're an avowed white supremacist or a neo-Nazi or, you know, a Klan member, you were born into it. That was never something that I assumed. But 
I also did not understand how, I mean, I keep using the word mundane and I'm trying to, maybe there's a better word for it, but something that's just so basic, honestly, that, you know, you might, you know, hear the message, meet somebody who believes this stuff because your kid goes to school with them or because you, you know, were bored one day and you were on the internet and YouTube's algorithm like pointed you in the direction of something that suggested, you know, there's actually a lot of racism against white people. And you were like, yeah, you know what? Actually, now that I think about it, you know, and like to me, the the accessibility of that message and the fact that it's not at all clear who's going to respond to it, that you could, like you said, come from a more liberal background or, uh, I don't know, a more educated background even. Like one of the women in my book has two degrees, I think. I think she has an undergrad and a master's. And like that there's no predictor for exactly who's going to find something that they're looking for in this movement. Yeah, well, the other the thing that makes me think of is something that it kept coming into my mind reading the book, which was, you know, you and I, two white people talking about bad white people, not, I feel like are not used to like addressing this issue as a kind of like something within like our culture, because we don't think about those people as being like, we don't, we, we're trying not to identify them. We've, we've been taught to not identify with them. And yet what the book is kind of revealing, of course, is like they exist on a spectrum with us and I don't know exactly what my question is, but you you wrote something about like the least Americans can ask of one another is to have a frank conversation about whiteness. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I guess I'm curious, like, what are the dimensions of that conversation for you? Yeah. Oh, wow. What a question. I mean, there are so many dimensions, but I think that, I mean, we're seeing, you know, some of it right now, I think. And obviously I could not have predicted that, you know, this book would be coming out in the midst of this historic uprising in the name of racial justice. But certainly, you know, the fact that all these anti-racist books by incredibly brilliant people are at the top of the New York Times bestseller list and anti-racist activists are on, you know, the morning shows talking about what they do. Like, I think frank conversations are happening or starting to happen around racism and around, you know, whiteness. And I think that with regard to that line in the book specifically, I think that whiteness is a concept that, I mean, I don't know if you feel this way, but like, I never really like growing up, even as an adult, like I would never, if someone asked me like, who are you? Like, tell me who you are. I would not identify as a white person because I don't think that whiteness to me held, nor nor does it hold now, like a particular sense of identity. And I think that one of the important conversations to have about whiteness is to recognize that just because like my whiteness is not something that I'm thinking about all the time doesn't mean that it's not benefiting me all the time, doesn't mean that it's not affecting the way that I see the world, affecting the way that people see me. And this is, you know, the white privilege conversation. And I think another dimension is that whiteness is a construct, which I'm, you know, drawing on the work of a lot of really awesome scholars who've talked about this, like Nell Irvin Painter at, in her book, The History of White People. Whiteness is, it's power. Like at the end of the day, it's power. And, you know, once upon a time, 
being white did not mean what it means now. You know, whiteness has expanded over time. It's come to include different nationalities. It's come to include different religious beliefs. And similarly, like political ideology is something that has shaped whiteness over time. And so, you know, if you look back at like the early 20th century, you know, when the first kind of red scares were bubbling up after the revolution in Russia um, and the labor movement was growing in the States, um, you know, real whiteness, that 100% Americanism that like the KKK at the time was talking about and using in their propaganda, that also had to do with not being a communist and not being a leftist. And it had to do with not being Catholic. And so I, I think that there's also like a need to think about whiteness, not as something that has strictly to do with the way you appear and has more to do with the power that you hold and the power that whiteness as like an entity holds. And this is why these conversations are hard to have because they're complicated and they're not, you know, they're, they're the kinds of things that really do require like a lot of reading and a lot of conversation and making errors. I mean, I certainly feel like I make errors all the time and thinking and talking about this stuff. I've probably made them in this conversation, <laughs> but like being willing to approach them and think about whiteness as problematic not just white nationalism as problematic like white nationalism is an extreme manifestation of whiteness as power it's saying that's how things should be whiteness should be power and we can say that that's wrong but the next level of that is also acknowledging the ways in which whiteness as power is oppressive and overwhelming to other people. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me that uh, that this this type of conversation, like you said, when you wrote the book, it would be difficult to imagine that we would be in this moment that we're now in. How does it feel like to have the book now be dropping into that stream and like you are going to be... I think I would guess like having these conversations in a way that might not have happened before. Yeah. It feels heavy. It feels, I mean, when, when I started writing this and, and even when I started working on the Harper's piece, like at the very beginning of this project, my, my husband very rightly, because he's a wise human said to me, like, this is your way of like contributing to the crisis in which America finds itself. Like, you're not a lawyer. You're not going to be saving people from deportation. <laughs> um, you know, you're not an elected official. You're not going to be, you know, creating sanctuary city policies. And I'm not a doctor. I'm not saving anybody in the middle of a pandemic, right? But I think my working on this project was my way of saying, like, I want to find a way to be a part of this conversation and to do the hard thing for me. And I think that with regard to what you're saying about kind of being dropped into the conversation, one of the things I've been thinking about a lot, especially just in the last couple of days, is that I'm probably going to say the wrong thing at some time and something that I'm ultimately going to learn from because people who've been thinking about this for way longer than four years are going to be able to say, here's the way in which that was an insufficient way of thinking about this, or have you considered this? And so, you know, it's certainly scary to go into a very charged environment with a topic like this, but it's kind of putting your money where your mouth is or whatever. What's a better way of putting this? Like I say in the book, basically that like these conversations are going to be uncomfortable and 
understanding the relation between extremism and the mainstream is a painful thing that is not something that you wake up in the morning and think, great, here's what I'm going to do today. Think, you know, about the ways in which my existence is not so dissimilar from the existence of white nationalists. But, you know, I think those are the conversations we have to have if we ever want to have any kind of like truly meaningful change in terms of how our culture thinks about issues of whiteness and, and issues of race more broadly. So, yeah, it's intimidating. Um, it's exciting. I hope I do well. <laughs> um, I hope I, you know, I, I hope that I'm bringing something to the conversation that is different than what other people are bringing to the conversation. And this is certainly something I thought about a lot in working on this, that there have been people who've been thinking about these topics for much longer than I have. And, you know, ultimately my interest was with women um, and how women have contributed to white supremacy, both in a main- mainstream sense and in an extreme sense. And I think that that is a wildly underexplored topic. And, you know, if that's something that I can, like, talk about what I've learned and people can see women's roles in this space for what they are and what they have been, you know, dating back to the Civil War, basically. You know, I think that that's, yeah, I I just, I hope that there's, I'm I'm adding something. So I can also imagine that there will be people who are just like, I don't have time for reading about white nationalists, talking about white nationalists, you know, that that I could see people saying, yeah, I know this is out there. Uh, this is not something I need to know more about. And I'm interested when you think of the audience for the book, like, who do you think of that audience as and has it changed over the period of writing it up till, you know, recent events? That's a great question. And you know, the most honest answer is that I'm shocked that anybody wants to read any word that I write. And so, (laughs) so like when I, when I think about an audience, I'm like, oh man, my mom, you know, like (laughs) I hope my mom reads this. My mom would literally read anything that I write, but no, like that's a, it's an interesting question because I don't necessarily know that that was at the forefront of my mind for better or worse in working on it. Like I knew that it felt important. I knew that it felt overlooked, particularly the aspect of women and like the weaponization of white femininity throughout American history to preserve whiteness as power. That felt like something that I, as a white woman, didn't feel like I had learned enough about in my life. And I wanted to learn and then I wanted to, you know, express what I had learned to other people. Who those other people were. I mean, certainly white women. Mm -hmm. And I think white women who who think about the far right in the way that the media has defined them largely over the last couple of years, especially as angry white men and, you know, trolls on the internet, which to be clear, there are lots of those, but it is both incorrect, but also dangerous, frankly, to not realize the ways in which the people who are fanning the flames of hate look and are a lot like most white women. And I've had a lot of pushback. I mean, this is something that I talked about a bit in the conclusion that I have spoken to white women of, you know, various ages and backgrounds who, for the most part, you know, are are liberal, who take issue with the concept of the book, because I think they think that it will be harmful somehow to the continuing advancement of women's rights I've had, you know, more than one woman tell me that it seems 
basically like, why is this worth your time? There's so many battles to be fought on behalf of women. And like, why are you embarking on a project that is ultimately looking at the ways in which women are white women have been like deeply problematic in American history and in American culture. And I guess like the, the way that I think about that is, um, you know, I think about feminists and feminist writers who I really admire and the way that for them, feminism has always ultimately been about, you know, the liberation of all people. And you can't really be a feminist if you don't fundamentally see that this isn't just about women. And so, you know, those are really uncomfortable conversations to have when <laughs> when uh, people who you otherwise agree with are saying, like, this makes me uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. But that's exactly the point. Learning doesn't have to be a comfortable thing. Um, I'm making my book sound like terrible, like a terrible plate of vegetables. I really don't need to do that. It's a, really, it's a good read. I, I, <laughs> I could just hear like PR people telling me, say word, like dial it back. It's not all <laughs> like eating your Brussels sprouts, which are actually delicious. But um, again, as you mentioned, it's you know told through the lens of these three women. Um, and I hope that their stories, because they're each similar and, and different in their own ways, like I hope that those are you know, compelling just from a who are we right now kind of standpoint. And uh, I hope I hope it's not a plate of vegetables. <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a plate of vegetables. It's not a plate of vegetables. <laughs> okay, that's good. I mean, I love vegetables. I'm, I don't even eat meat, so. <laughs> Your problem is with insulting the vegetables. That's, that's the issue. You're right. You're, you're right, Evan. My book is a delicious plate of like sautéed, or no, roasted. Roasted vegetables are the best vegetables. There you go. Now Little balsamic vinegar, olive oil, 400 degrees. Yeah, that's Now your book. publicist is, is <laughs> loving this. Um, I do want to ask about some of the origins of your interest in journalism. Partly Please. because as you, as someone who knows you and knows a little bit about your college newspaper experience, I am curious how that uh, intersects with your interest in this particular topic. Yeah. Uh, so you edited your college newspaper, Duke University. It was also your college newspaper, Evan. Well, I don't like to advertise that fact. <laughs> I'm not a... First of all, mine was 10 years before, but okay, also uh, I was only a photographer. And uh, I'm not a big partisan for our shared university, let's just say. Totally fair. I generally totally don't fair. like to talk about it because I have a, not that many positive things to say. But <laughs> first of all, was that your... How, how did you get into journalism in college like what attracted you to it at that time yeah um i had done some journalism in high school and uh i really loved it i mean our they didn't have like any nothing fancy i think the newspaper came out like four times a year but i did really enjoy it and then when i got to duke or should we call it something no else? no, no it's, we can okay, say we that can you call went it there okay. it's fine um <laughs> <laughs> um i you know was kind of trying to figure out what i wanted to do there and I went to an information session at the newspaper. And I remember the fact that I was from North Carolina was of interest to a more senior person on the paper because they needed somebody who just kind of like understood North Carolina a little bit, you know, knew where things were, <laughs> like, like which city is where. And so that's actually how I started. And then, yeah, the college paper became my life. And so, you know, I went to college. I studied poetry. Didn't even write it. Just studied it. Um, but really I was just working at the college paper. <laughs> but then one of the, and like younger people may not even like be aware of this, but like one of the biggest sort of 
college incident kind of things that gets played out in the national news happened while you were editor of the newspaper, which was the Duke lacrosse case. And I'm very interested in what that experience was like for you. Like, how did it feel to be in the middle of that maelstrom? And also like a college student running a news organization that presumably was like the closest thing to the story. It's so wild to me that, because I feel like for the longest time, you know, not the longest time, but for like five to seven years, if I mentioned that I went to Duke, it was the very first thing that people thought of. And now I think it's like reaching the point where there are people who just, it's just not something that they lived through or, you know, watched on TV, um, which is wild to me. But um, yeah, so this would have been March of 2006, a group of lacrosse players at Duke were hosting a party at an off-campus house. The lacrosse team was, I forget, like 30, 40-something players. To this day, I don't totally understand lacrosse, but whatever. There were a good number of players. I think all but one of them was white. And they hired a an exotic dancer to come to the house. She was African-American, Black, and she, she came with a friend and later accused three men at the party of raping her in a bathroom and they were charged. It was extremely high profile. And in the end, all the charges were dropped. The district attorney and the case was disbarred. And the woman who accused them of sexual assault was, I, I think she's now serving life in prison for killing somebody. Oh, oh, for killing someone, not for, yeah, not yeah, for yeah. Oh, like no, no, false. No, 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 sorry, yeah. sorry. For like a totally unrelated. I didn't know. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's a ultimately a wildly tragic story on kind of every level possible. So, but yeah, so that would have been March and it was national news every day for the duration of the school year. So the campus was playing host to, you know, vans from local affiliates, but also CNN, MSNBC, um, the New York Times sent somebody down. Newsweek sent somebody down. Buzz Bissinger came down. I don't think that he ever wrote anything about it for Vanity Fair, but he definitely came down. Nick Kristoff emailed me at one point <laughs> about writing about it. Like, it was just everybody was talking about it. So it was exhausting, frankly. <laughs> like, when I think back on that time, I mostly just remember, like, not sleeping because it was so nonstop and there was so much to do at all times at the paper uh, that I was just, you know, running off an hour, two hours of sleep at any given time. It was also, I mean, to this day, like I've never witnessed something like that, like a true media frenzy mm -hmm. where, you know, every single person who was there on campus, primarily print and TV, like any little tiny piece of news that they could get a quote from somebody who'd never been quoted before, you know, an interview with a neighbor who lived, you know, two houses instead of five houses down from the house. Like it was just wild to witness what it means to live in a 24 seven news cycle and upsetting, frankly, in how people were so much more concerned with winning, with getting the the newest bit of information, but also telling the most salacious story as opposed to just getting things right. <laughs> and that was a very bizarre and frustrating thing to watch happen in real time. It made me 
very firmly convinced that I never wanted to work in TV news because it was just a lot to watch people who were coming from the major networks who really, they didn't know what was going on. Like they'd been given some kind of basic background information, but they weren't reporters, really. They were talking heads who were then getting on camera and talking about things that they didn't really have a good handle on. And that was something that was instructive for me because I was like, I do not want to work in that. Um, Like that's not the type of journalism or frankly, like any type of field that, you know, I was interested in. It seems like it also could, it's the kind of thing that could drive you like out of journalism, not just the talking heads part, but, you know, the scope of the story was that the three guys were sort of in a wide general sense, like convicted in the press, like everyone thought that they did it. And then they were sort of exonerated for it, but also that it was a thing that happened, like the reason why everyone thought they did it. I mean, frankly, as a person who went to that school, like I'd put myself in that category when it happened. I was like, oh yeah, lacrosse team. Yeah. They finally got them. Like people have been talking about this shit for years, Yeah, but like the dynamics of it were both that there were people who were falsely accused, but also that the thing that was supposed to have happened is a thing that happens and the dynamics of it are real. And that's what made it like doubly upsetting. Absolutely. How it turned out. And that's, it's such a complicated case in terms of, you know, what went wrong and who was wrong and when, and, you know, I think ultimately the vast majority of responsibility lies with the district attorney for, you know, mishandling the case but also the media for immediately saying, okay, this is the narrative. Like nobody ever seemed terribly interested in an alternative way of thinking about it. And that was remarkably frustrating. And then what I think you're, you're getting at is the fact that then when they were, you know, all charges were dropped and the case was over and they, you know, sued the university, I think sued the city as well. What was, Frustrating in that sense was that there were very, very real concerns about, I mean, some of the topics, frankly, that I I talk about in my book, white supremacy, whiteness as power, toxic masculinity, all these different things that made the story that the media immediately bought into plausible and were important things to talk about. But because the case was so badly bungled from both a legal and a coverage standpoint, Those dimensions, it's almost like impossible to talk about them reasonably in the context of that case. And so, you know, those broader sort of societal and cultural concerns about, you know, what does it mean that this team of mostly white players hired a black woman who whose last name, if I recall correctly, was the name of one of the biggest slaveholders in Durham County in the 1800s, like what does that say? Like, what are what are we working with here? <laughs> um, and that's something like to this day it, that is like very upsetting, I think, for anybody who worked and lived through that particular moment. And it connects to the far right insofar as and I think New York Magazine wrote a piece about this maybe two or three years ago. And I know that there's a documentarian working on a project right now about how the alt right, one of its uh, important inspirations was the Duke lacrosse case Hmm. Um, because for people who ultimately, you know, decided to be part of that iteration of white nationalism, the Duke lacrosse case was an example of anti-white 
sentiment on the part of a community, on the part of liberals, on the part of the justice system, which is, I'm laughing because it's just so, uh, the idea that there's anti-white bias in the justice system is just wild. But anyway, but I think that it was a almost like a foundational kind of like mythology for a certain generation of far-right acolytes. And isn't it also one of the things, I mean, speaking of white nationalists, uh, isn't that one of the things that put Stephen Miller like on the map originally? Another illustrious Duke University alumni, now presidential advisor on immigration, <laughs> many other topics. He was there and a part of that too, right? Yeah, um, he very much was. So Stephen Miller was a columnist at the Duke student paper. Um, he had a column called Miller Time, and he wrote about such things as the case for Christmas, um, why feminism is bad, the defense of smoking, just real fun, like almost fun, I'm saying sarcastically, <laughs> um, like trolling, like provocative, like conservative type arguments. And um, but then he was also like an activist across campus and he was involved in conservative political organizations on campus and hosted events like brought arch conservative speakers and, you know, was just the conservative guy on campus, if you will. And he, in the midst of all of the lacrosse stuff, he became a talking head uh, in the media very early on defending the lacrosse players and saying, you know, we shouldn't rush to judgment, which perfectly reasonable thing to say. But he even then was already speaking about, you know, this is a radical reaction by the liberal establishment to you know, what they perceive as white male, you know, bad behavior. And so he, from go, was interested in the arch-conservative narrative about what this said about America. And against my much better judgment, I recently was rereading um, one of his columns from college, and he had a term that's kind of like a proto-social justice warrior term, and I think it's called, like, the racial left or something. He had a way of describing basically people who are now the people who are protesting in support of Black Lives Matter. And this is a very roundabout way of saying that Stephen Miller has always been exactly the same person. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I ask about it partly because it's just interesting because most college newspaper careers are utterly forgettable, like yes. uh, for obvious reasons. Yes. But like, I'm interested in to what extent you feel like this kind of like was a factor in your mind in choosing the topic you did to spend devote years of your life to that you've been enmeshed at some level in right. this conversation as a journalist since you started. Right. No, that's you're very perceptive, Evan, because I hadn't necessarily connected all of those dots, but I think they do connect because you're right. Like it certainly informed the way I thought about discussions of race and discussions of class and discussions of, oh, I mean, God, just pretty much anything like that case was everybody at the time used the phrase, the perfect storm, but it really was like, it just brought in every possible like conversation about America. <laughs> and I think that, you know, when, when I started working on researching the women of white nationalism, you know, at that point in 2016, I was well aware of Stephen Miller's role in the Trump campaign 
I actually distinctly remember the first time I realized he was part of the campaign. He was like serving as one of Trump's hype men at a rally pretty early. This would have been like, God, like late 2015 or something. And I hadn't thought about Stephen Miller in the longest time (laughs) because why would one? And I think the last time I had thought about him was when I was living in D.C. uh, between like, I don't know, 2008, 2011. I was working at the New Republic and he was working on the Hill maybe for Michelle Bachman. This was before he started working for Jeff Sessions. And uh, he emailed me once or twice, I think, to say, like, let's get coffee. And I I don't know, talk about old times. I don't even know what that would mean. But um, I did not meet him for coffee. But I had not thought about him in the longest time. And then suddenly there he was. And he was, again, exactly the same person that he had always been. And he was saying the same things, but suddenly was in a position of having power and potentially in a position to gain more power. And I do think that it's a not insignificant (laughs) reason that in some ways the election felt um, not personal exactly, but there was this element of like, I had a front row seat (laughs) at one point to the dynamics in play in the evolution of the far right as we know it now, but also literally in one of the president's most trusted advisors development and worldview and you know, that certainly wasn't at the forefront of my mind when I was pitching Harper's, but I think that it was there. Um, it's kind of impossible not to be. Mm-hmm. We should, I should also point out that while you were pitching Harper's, you were also an editor. You'd been at the New Republic, foreign policy, and then you were uh, somewhat just after that editor at the Addis Magazine. It's um, true. It's true. And so as a person who has also traveled back and forth between writing and editing. I'm always very Mm -hmm. interested in that crossover. And first, I'm curious what your perspective is as a long form magazine editor in terms of like the type of writer that you are looking for, let's say. Let's start there. Yeah, totally. I mean, for me, the most important thing is somebody's passion for the idea that they are pitching me. I feel like the best Atavis stories, and this is super specific to the Atavis, just in terms of, you know, the type of publication that you guys built and like the type of story that it runs. But people who come to a story with a lot of passion, just like like they can't stop thinking about it. You know, it's like, this is a story I just really feel like I want to write, like I have to write. Like that kind of like itch you just can't resist scratching is the thing that is most important to me when talking to someone like I don't I'm not as interested in somebody who's like, okay, well, this is another assignment in my long list of assignments. And, you know, I'm a pro, so I'm going to kill it. Like that's less. I mean, great. If you're going to kill it, love that. Please do. Um, Won't say no. (laughs) But but also um, like I get most excited when the writer is really, really excited. And then I think the other thing that's most important to me is just like a willingness to really collaborate, to think creatively and to, you know, try weird structures or, you know, take a bunch of stabs at a draft, Um, just a willingness to say like, okay, this might be hard um, and we might really be in like the thick of it for a while, but that's okay because like I want to, you know, mold it into the best thing that it can be. And so that kind of... I don't know, being game is something that is really important. And then, you know, I, I, it's important, obviously, that someone is a good writer. But at the same time, I mean, certainly we worked on a few stories together where I think the person writing them 
had never really written something more longer than like two or three thousand words. Yeah, we, we always had a bunch of those. Totally. And like, that's fine by me. Like, I don't need somebody to have, you know, written a ton of cover stories at, you know, between six and 10,000 words. Somebody who sees the story clearly and has the passion and the somebody can have a good idea, but do they actually know how they want to execute on that idea? And that's such an important thing because there are lots of weird stories in the world. But if you haven't already kind of thought through, how am I going to do this? Why am I the person to do it? Um, like those things are are so important. And maybe that's defined as like hustle to a certain extent, but it's also just like doing a certain degree of legwork in advance to really show that like you can pull this off. So I would rather work with somebody who, as happened in one case, uh, pushed, you know, a USB across the table and was like, I've never written anything longer than like 1500 words, but I know I have a great story here. Like, let's figure that out together. Um, like, I would rather that than pretty much anything else. Like, that's fun to me. So what is editing those stories? What has that done for your writing? Like when you sat down to write the book, did you feel like you're a different writer than you were before you've edited like dozens and dozens of, you know, eight, 10, 20, 30,000 word stories? Yes, a hundred percent. I mean, first of all, I think as an editor, and I don't know if you feel this way, I think you've you've done more writing um, than I have, like as an editor. But I find writing periodically vital to being a good editor because I think it's a empathy building part of the work to realize just how hard it is, particularly when you're talking about a eight to ten, whatever you know, or a book. Uh, a very, very long project, just how daunting it is to sit down and figure that out. And so I think that, you know, writing helps me be a better editor. I hope it helps me be a better editor. But I also think that editing helps me, and in, in this case, certainly helped me be become a better writer. And I think I was better equipped to write a book. And particularly in this case, like the book was tricky because there's a lot of jumping around in time. There's jumping around fields. Like, you know, there's sections that are very heavy on thinking about psychology. There are, you know, sections that are really heavy in thinking about history. And thinking about all of those pieces and how to weave them together into something that felt coherent and still narratively propulsive. Like, I think working on so many Atavis stories up to the point that I, you know, really sat down to write the book was hugely helpful because that's always the hardest nut to crack. And I think having worked on helping helping people figure out how to tell narrative stories where the narrative is not the easy chronology was really helpful for me then figuring out how to structure those sections. Mm -hmm. It was also, I will say, working on this book was very stressful. <laughs> um, spending a lot of time on weird parts of the internet and, you know, talking to people who believe things that I can't even fathom and really confronting like some of the worst aspects of what it means to live in America. <laughs> it was actually really nice to be able to, in my atavist work, both be doing something that I felt like was helpful to that process, but that was also not at all about those topics. To still feel like I was learning something and probably bringing those things to bear on working in working on the book, but also, I don't know, helping craft a story about, God, what are some stories I worked on in that time? Um, Bears. <laughs> Bears, first yeah, responders. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah so... I don't know. It was hard to work the job the whole time and, you know, do the book. And I didn't really have any book leave. But in some ways, it was actually like a nice balancing element. So I want to return to one part of what you said, which is sort of spending time in these places on the Internet and 
and all these kind of like really, really dark spaces that you had to go inhabit, both historical, like reading about, Mm -hmm. you know, whether it's the history of the Klan and neo-Nazi groups and everything else, or in actual literal spaces with people. I mean, you write in the book at some point that you, you found it difficult not to feel despondent, kind of like spending all this time in this world. And now, like we're at a time where like the president of the United States is like, just retweeting like people saying white power like it's like but we're Mm -hmm. also in a time where there's a lot happening and a lot being talked about that has just never been a national conversation in this way and a protest movement and everything else so where did your outlook from your reporting from that that sort of despondency of being inside of it where did your outlook kind of land on the other side Yeah. Um, I mean, I will confess, and maybe I think I might even say this in the book, like I confess to being a pessimist by nature. Like I'm an extrovert and very energetic, but I'm also like constantly thinking about catastrophe. Um, (laughs) It's just like the way my brain works. And so um, I was, I, I think that in some ways that was my ultimate reaction, like coming out of the reporting, putting the book together, trying to figure out how to write a conclusion. I was like, there's nothing good I have to say here. Like, this ideology is persistent. We like to think that, you know, it's not in some way, but it's been there for so long. It keeps surging at various moments. It surges in particularly precarious moments, um, like the one in which we find ourselves in 2020, when there are a lot of people living with uncertainty and a lot of people who are facing uncomfortable situations that they've never had to face before. And that's a moment where we actually historically see backlash and see like a surge in these kinds of ideologies. Um, At the same time, I, I think I say this at the end too, like one of the things that helped me think more, not positively, but in a more hopeful, more, um, I don't know, forward thinking direction as opposed to like, here we are, here's where we've always been, here's where we're always going to be, was thinking about it in smaller doses Um, that, you know, history, just like so many things, it's, you know, two steps forward, one step back, sometimes two steps forward, three steps back. But like, there's this incremental motion forward. And it happens sometimes in ways that aren't making headlines. So I mean, I certainly took hope in working on the book and talking to people who had left the movement. And one of them, you know, is Karina, who's one of the main subjects. But I actually talked to probably like a half dozen other women who had left the movement at some point. And, you know, hearing their stories about, again, like they didn't leave because, you know, somebody convinced them this was the way to be and that, you know, they'd been seeing the world wrong. They left because it made sense for them, um, because there was something that no longer worked for them in that space that they were seeking somewhere else. But in some cases, that ultimately led to them really turning things around. And, you know, some of them have become like liberal activists or, you know, helping run support groups for people who've left hate organizations and, you know, really seeing them again, they're not going to make headlines. And in some cases they really didn't want their names to be known even not, not even from a point of shame, but just from a point of safety, but like they're doing good things and, um, and really contributing to the greater good. And I think that that was helpful for me to think like, you know, 
it would be nice if suddenly overnight everything became better <laughs> and we lived in like a more just society, but that's obviously not going to happen. And so, um, you know, looking for what works in actually taking small steps forward. And I think that, again, I could not have predicted what happened over the last couple of weeks um, with the protests and the uprising. And like, it's a very like invigorating moment to see people having exactly the conversations that I felt like, you know, even just a few months ago, if you tried to have people kind of looked at you askance, like why, what, I don't want to talk about that. Like, I don't, you know, things are bad enough. I don't want to talk about that. And now it's like, things are bad enough, but we're still talking about it, you know? And uh, again, I'm, I'm concerned about backlash for sure. Um, and this is actually something I'm writing a little bit about in a piece I'm working on. Like, I'm nervous about how a moment that's there's a lot to take hope from is also exactly the moment in which, um, you know, historically people have uh, found reason to radicalize. But, you know, again, maybe that's two steps forward, one step back. That's probably really cliche sounding, but it's it's kind of where, at least for me, like I had to land to to not feel, you know, like America as a project is a completely like doomed endeavor. <laughs> we better stop on, a, on that note of optimism before you circle back around to the, uh, to the inverse of that. Um, I'm doing my best. <laughs> Sayward, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Evan. That's it for this week's Longform Podcast. I'm your co-host, Evan Ratliff. Thank you to Sayward for coming on the show. Thanks to my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer and Max Linsky, and to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer. Our intern is Julianne Parker, and our sponsor, as always, is MailChimp. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.